If I have not had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Alan. I am, uh, I am uh, privileged to serve as senior pastor here, as well as one of the elders. And uh, we are glad that you're worshiping with us today. If you're a guest, we'd love to have uh, an opportunity to kind of connect with you. You can use that connection card, drop it in the offering plate when it's passed a little bit later. That way we can uh, reach out to you this week and give you information about the church. We are, if you would grab your worship guide, we are preaching through the book of Acts as a church family uh, this year. And, and you can see now we're on chapter 5, and then at the bottom of the sermon notes on the worship guide, says that next week will be in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Uh, I did not have an opportunity to get all the notes to the office this week. In fact, I got none of them to the office. So they will be on the screen for you, and you can take notes as we move along. But I did want to kind of give you an update on our preaching schedule. Uh, we have spent the last 15 weeks or so uh, walking from Acts chapter 1, verse 1, up to the end of chapter 5. Next Sunday, I'll be preaching from Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, which is about the beginning of the deacon ministry within the life of the church. And the really cool thing about our church is that we are ready to announce three new deacons in our church family. And as a result of that, we'll be able to focus on Sunday morning. God timed this perfectly where we can focus on the role of a deacon. And then Sunday night, we can come back together next Sunday, the 22nd, for a night of worship at 6 o'clock where we can worship together and celebrate and sing and to discuss, uh, uh, to, to pray over, I should say, the deacons and their families. So here are the th three new deacons. If you're a church member, you should have received an email on Friday or Saturday about this, but here are the three new deacons, Randy Bowder, Jacob Justice, and Scott Logan. And so I want you to uh, uh, encourage them, pray for them, be a part of next Sunday morning and Sunday evening as we uh, celebrate all that God's doing in the life of our church family. So that's kind of where we're at. Then at that point, we're going to pause on the book of Acts for about eight weeks. And then over the next couple of months after that, we'll preach from the book of Psalms. And then in July, we'll jump right back into the book of Acts and walk through the rest of the year. And we won't finish the book of Acts this year. We'll continue into next year. But I wanted to kind of give you an update on the preaching schedule. All right, hopefully you have a Bible with you. If you do, open it to the book of Acts chapter 5. If you don't have a copy of Scripture with you uh, on your phone or elsewise, uh, otherwise you can grab a copy of the Bible. It should be one near you, underneath a seat near you. If you don't have a Bible, you need one at the house, you know somebody that needs one, take that with you. That'll be our gift to you this morning. We are going to be jumping into Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through the end of the chapter. But in order to do that, I needed to give you a brief refresher from last week. Last week, you can always, by the way, go to our website and see on the sermon archives uh, previous sermons. But last week, we looked at chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, which is a summary section of all that God was doing in that time. And the thing that we see from those summary verses is that the apostles would go to the temple, and in the temple they'd go to an area called Solomon's Portico, and while they were there they would preach and teach about Jesus and also perform miracles. And the things we saw last week were this, that God's power was on display as people were healed and multitudes of new believers were added to their numbers. And as a result of what God was doing, as a result of what the apostles were preaching, Everything we look at today was the reaction of those around them. So if you're wondering why the reaction of the religious leaders, you can look back at verses 12 through 16 and see a little bit about it. 
So here is what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask three questions this morning as we move through this passage of Scripture. Here is the first question that I have for us. Could anything prevent the apostles from preaching the good news? The apostles in this story, in this account of chapter 5 of the book of Acts, we are going to see three distinct um, scenes, if you will, of what takes place. And in each of these three scenes, they will be faced with something that's a huge obstacle to preaching the gospel, and they have a choice to make. Will they continue to preach the gospel, or will they cower back and not preach the gospel? So we're going to look at these in sections. Let's begin by looking at the first scene. It's found in verses 17 through the beginning of verse 21. And in this scene, we're going to find out that the apostles get arrested, but then what do they do after they're arrested? Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. As a result of everything we read previously, it says, but the high priest, he's there in the temple, but the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, <clears throat> they were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles. In this scenario, they arrest all 12 of the apostles, not just Peter and John. They arrest the, all of the apostles. It says they arrest the apostles and they put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they, being the apostles, entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So, here's what's going on. The religious leaders see and hear everything that's going on in Solomon's portico and everything the apostles are doing, and they get angry and it says they get filled with jealousy and they arrest the apostles. Why are they so upset that the apostles are teaching about Jesus? Why are they so upset that the apostles are preaching about the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead? First and foremost, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The religious leaders are, are thinking that Jesus is some kind of fraud. And so they don't believe anything that Jesus says about himself. But the reality is Jesus is exactly who he says he is, right? And also the Sadducees are actually a group of religious leaders who they don't believe in the resurrection period. And so it's offensive to them that the apostles are preaching the resurrection of Jesus. On top of all that, you could flip back, we're not going to read any verses, but you could look back at chapter 3, and in chapter 3 of Acts, we see that the apostles, Peter and John, show up outside the temple, and when they get there that day, they heal a lame man. He was a beggar, he'd been lame for over 40 years, and they heal this man, and people kind of get excited, the religious leaders kind of get angry, the apostles end up in Solomon's portico in chapter 3, they preach the gospel, and as a result of that, they get arrested, Peter and John get arrested, they're put before the Sanhedrin, who is the religious ruling council of the Jewish people, and when they're before the Sanhedrin, they're charged by the Sanhedrin to stop teaching the name of Jesus. So we need all of that background to understand why the religious leaders are reacting in such a way in chapter 5. So they're told once in Solomon's portico to stop preaching the gospel. They're told to stop preaching Jesus. 
After that, they get released. They go and pray for God to give them more boldness to preach the gospel. We see that in chapter 4. And what do the apostles do? They get back into the temple area. In chapter 5, we see last week they're preaching in Solomon's portico. So they've been there once, got arrested. They were told to stop preaching the gospel. What do the apostles do? They go back and preach there again. So now in chapter 5, verse 17, the religious leaders begin to be very angry and they arrest all of the apostles. Look at verse 17. It says that the religious leaders, the high priest, was filled with jealousy. I I was interested this week as I studied the meaning of that word. My first reaction was, oh, they're jealous. Like, they're angry. They, They see what's going on with the apostles, and they're jealous of what the apostles are doing, and therefore they react in such a way that they say, We don't like you very much. They're jealous of what is happening among the early believers. And so I kind of picked that up. Then I looked at the Greek word, and the Greek word for jealous is actually the same kind of word that is used for the word zeal, Z-E-A-L. And the reality is this. They were filled with religious zeal and fervor that was misguided in such a way that they felt like they were honoring God by rejecting the apostles, when in reality, they were rejecting God by rejecting the apostles. And it says that they're filled with jealousy. That word filled in the Greek is the same word that's used when it describes the apostles when they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so what we see with the religious leaders is instead of being filled with God's Holy Spirit, they are filled with rage and anger and jealousy and everything against God. So that's what's happening here. These men are mad and they're seeking to stop all of the preaching of Jesus' name. Look down in verse 18 with me. It says that their reaction was that they arrested the apostles. I want you to see that it says that they, not only did they arrest the apostles, they put those apostles in a public prison. In other words, this place that the apostles were put was a public space. There's no denying what takes place in the future when the apostles are released from prison by the angel of God because the public knew that they had been put into prison. Then look at verse 19. Verse 19 is interesting. In a few short words, it tells a miraculous thing that takes place when God released the people of uh, the apostles from prison by just simply saying sometime during the night the Lord opened the prison doors by the words of the angel of the Lord and he brought them out like I would love to know more details how does this happen we're going to see in just a bit that all the prison doors are locked and the guards are still there and so did the guards go to sleep were the guards put in some kind of hypnotic not I can't say the word trance what happens we don't know but whatever miraculously God delivered his people from the prison and then in verse 20 look at it they're commanded to go where they're commanded to go to the temple and preach the words of this life Imagine for just a minute you're the apostles. You get arrested for preaching the name of Jesus at the temple. You go to prison. During the night, God miraculously delivers you. And then after delivering you, in that moment, the angel says, Hey guys, just want you to know that when you get out, I'd like you to go into the temple and preach the gospel. 
Me being logical, I would say, uh, excuse me, that doesn't make any sense. Like, you know we just got arrested there, right? So why would we go back to the site of the crime, which there was no crime, but why would we go back to that same site and subject ourselves to arrest again? But thankfully, they don't respond that way. So here's the first obstacle. These apostles are arrested, and they know it's because they were preaching the gospel. Then they get released, and they could have run off and hid and tried to get away, but what do they do? They hear the words of the Lord, and they respond and preach the gospel. I want you to look at the beginning of verse 21. It says, when they heard it, they obeyed it. When they heard it, they entered the temple. When did they enter the temple? They entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. I can see what's going on here. And in my mind, as I picture what takes place, these apostles have been arrested for preaching the gospel. They love Jesus so much that whenever his angel says, go back and preach the gospel, they're chomping at the bits. They're waiting to get there. And as soon as the doors of the temple are open, by golly, they are right back in there. And they're right back at Solomon's portico and they're preaching the gospel again. All along, as we look at these scenarios, we want to ask ourselves, what is it that's keeping us from preaching the gospel? In this scenario, nothing stops the apostles they preach the gospel. Let's look at the second scene. The second scene continues in verse 21 and then goes through verse 32. Here's what it says. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council all the senate of the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought. In other words, they went to get the people, the apostles, back to come to them. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and they reported. Here's what they report. Look at this. Verse 23, we found the prison securely locked. The guards were standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Needless to say, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And then someone comes up to them and tells them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, when they brought the apostles, they set them before the council, and the high priest began to question them. Here's what he said in verse 28. We strictly charge you not to teach in this name. Yet, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend with, to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So we, we see in the first scene that they're told to stop preaching the gospel and they're in the prison and they get out and go back to the to the, to, to the site and begin to preach the gospel again. And so in this scene, we see that they get scolded by the religious leaders, and yet Peter responds to that scolding by preaching 
to the very ones who were scolding him. He stands up boldly to preach the gospel even when he's told not to. Look back through the beginning of these verses. In 21, we see that the Sanhedrin, who was the highest uh, supreme court, if you will, uh, of the Jewish people, they sent for the apostles to be taken out of the prison to come to trial, if you will. But we find out that the prison is locked down tight. There's no way that the doors could have been opened. There's no way that anybody could have gotten out. The guards were in their post. It's not like they were sitting around eating donuts, doing nothing. They were where they were supposed to be. And yet, it's empty. The apostles are gone. God miraculously delivered them from prison. The incredible thing is this. Remember back in verse 17, we see the Sadducees are there. The Sadducees don't believe in miraculous things at all. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. And yet there's no way to explain what took place other than to say a miracle of God, the angel of the Lord brought deliverance to the apostles. So here we have where the apostles are not there. Where are they? They are preaching in the temple they're at solomon's portico they're preaching again in other words they obeyed verse 20 verse 20 says go and stand in the temple and when you stand in the temple preach the words of life and then in verse 25 we see they're standing in the temple and they're preaching the words of jesus so because of all of that transaction that's going on the Sanhedrin says, all right, y'all go get them. So they go to the temple. They get the apostles. The apostles come willingly. They don't resist. There's no force taken. They just show up and they're brought before the Sanhedrin. Look at verse 28. Verse 28. Here's what he says to them. The high priest says, we strictly charged you to not teach in his name. You know something interesting about the Greek here? When you look at the Greek, there's the same word repeated twice. In our English, it says strictly charged. In the Greek, I, I don't want to try to attempt to pronounce the word because I, wouldn't, I would butcher it, but there is a noun and a verb side by side, and it's actually the same word. To translate it, it literally means, by command, we commanded you. By command, that's the noun, we commanded you, that's the verb. So back to back to say we strictly charged you is putting it lightly. They said we made this crystal clear. You under no circumstances were to preach or teach the name of Jesus and yet you are back there doing the very thing. And then I love the ending of verse 28. Not only are they preaching the name of Jesus, here's what it says, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. I don't want to be arrested for preaching the gospel. But if I were arrested for preaching the gospel, if you were arrested for preaching the gospel, would the authorities be able to have you in front of them and would they be able to say, we strictly charge you to not preach the name of Jesus and yet here we are, all of College Station is filled with your teaching because you've told everyone around you about the name of Jesus. That's not intended to come down on you. That's intended to come down on myself as well. 
Does my reputation of preaching the gospel everywhere I go and telling others about Jesus, is it exhibited by the people around me having heard the gospel? This phrase, filled the city of Jerusalem, the word filled carries with it the idea of being filled to the brim. Like, there's just no other way to share more of Jesus than what they were doing. You see, they weren't just preaching in Solomon's portico. They were preaching Jesus everywhere they went. It wasn't just Peter. It wasn't just John. It wasn't just the 12 apostles. It was all of the believers of Jesus Christ that were going out being disciples who make disciples as they're being the church. So here are the religious leaders. They're saying, we told you to stop, and yet you are doing the exact opposite. And then I love it. Peter, it says Peter and the apostles, so we don't know whether they tag-teamed and preached by tag-teaming, like preaching a sentence or two and switching off. We don't know whether this is a compilation of what they said, but we do know that it's not just Peter speaking these words, because if you look down in verse 29, it says, but Peter and the apostles answered. See, in this scenario, as they're standing in front of the religious leaders, and the religious leaders said, we strictly charge you to stop preaching Jesus, and why are you doing this? They could have been silent and said nothing. But Peter and the apostles do the exact opposite, and this actually gives them boldness to do what? They not only say, are we going to preach in the temple? They're like, hey, religious leaders, we're going to go ahead and preach to you now. Like, you're telling us to not preach the name of Jesus guess what? We don't care. We're going to preach the name of Jesus and you're going to hear about it. I don't think they said it with any kind of attitude. I don't think they were being hateful. I think it just was evident that their love for Jesus oozed out of them in such a way they couldn't contain themselves. It was just natural for them to say, you don't want us to preach Jesus, but we can't help it. It's like a fire shut up in their bones. They had to preach Jesus. So they don't allow the scolding to stop them from preaching. Instead, they preach to those who are scolding them. The reason they do that, they say in verse 29, is because they must obey God rather than men. You may want to mark this down or look quickly back at, um, I've got to look and see where it's at. Um, sorry, I'm lost in my notes here. Oh, chapter 4, verse 19. In chapter 4, verse 19, when Peter and John were standing before the religious leaders another time, and they said, stop preaching Jesus, Peter gives the same answer. We can't choose obedience to man. We have to choose obedience to God. I want us to look real quickly at the content of the sermon that they preached that day. The content is found in verses 30 through 32. Undoubtedly, these are not the only words they shared. This is like kind of their main points. But let's look real quickly at the contents of their sermon I love the fact that they start in verse 30 by saying the God of our fathers. Why do they say the God of our fathers? Think about the Old Testament. God is often referred to as what? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Over and over and over again. Because they need to understand that the God they worship is the one true God. And so here is Peter and the apostles, and they're standing before the religious leaders, and they're saying, guys, we are not preaching a foreign religion. We're not preaching about another God. We're talking about the one true God. Like, Jesus is the fulfillment of who God is and what God's word has to say. And so they're preaching the words of life to these men. 
And here's what they say. Look at verses 30, 31, and 32. They say, hey, you wrongly killed Jesus. It says you hung him on a tree. That's a, an idiom to, to actually refer to crucifixion on, on a cross. And so they're saying, hey, guys, you wrongly killed him. So not only are they uh, not stopping to preach about Jesus, they're preaching directly to these men. Not only are they preaching directly to these men, now they're saying, hey, guys, y'all killed Jesus, and you did it wrong. You wrongly killed Jesus. Then he says that God raised Jesus from the dead. The Sadducees are probably shaking their head. They're like, we don't believe in resurrection. And the apostles said, we saw him. We know he was raised. Jesus was raised from the dead. God has raised him. But not only that, we were there at Pentecost when God exalted him and took him back to heaven. And so we see that God exalted Jesus. And it says in verse 31 that God exalted him as leader and savior. Leader is not just like, oh, he is our leader. No, leader carries with it something of much more weight to it. It's the author, the, uh, the pioneer, the founder. And who is the author of life? God himself. They're saying Jesus was exalted because he is one of the Trinity, a part of the Trinity, and he is God. He is leader. He is savior. He brings salvation. It's not the law that brings salvation. It's Jesus Christ himself. Life is found in Jesus. Along those lines in verse 31, he says that Jesus brings or gives to us the opportunity for repentance and forgiveness of sin. And then 32 says, hey, we're his witnesses and the reason we're his witnesses is because the Holy Spirit is living inside of us and he's his witness too and he's propelling us out to go and preach the gospel. They're living out what we see in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 whenever Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria and the ends of the earth. This gospel that he preaches is the same gospel that applies to us today. Our sins are the very things that sent Jesus to the cross. The good news is that Jesus didn't stay on the cross, but that he was raised on the third day. And the good news is that he's not just kind of uh, not in the grave anymore, but rather he is exalted. He is in heaven. He's at the right hand of God. He is in charge. He is, in, he is sovereign. And through what he did for us, through repentance that he offers to us, he gives us forgiveness of our sins. So my question for you today is this. Are you simply attending church? Are you simply doing the religious thing? Are you simply being a good moral person? Or are you understanding that there is no life outside of repentance of our sin and acceptance of what Jesus did on our behalf and trusting in him for the forgiveness of our sins? See, our sins eternally, forever, separate us from a holy perfect god but god sent his son and his name is jesus and he came and he lived and he died and was resurrected so that we could have life in him again and so this morning as we move through the rest of this message if you have not trusted in jesus as your source of life would you make that choice today and even as I say, make that choice, I want you to look in verse 31 when it says that it's Jesus who gives repentance. It's Jesus who gives forgiveness of sins. It is Jesus who grants it to us. We can't earn salvation. It's completely the work of Christ. It's his grace. It's his provision. It's his gift 
to us if we'll receive it. So now let's look quickly at the last scene, beginning in verse 33, and we'll walk through the rest of the chapter. After they preached to the Sanhedrin, it says, when the Sanhedrin heard this, they were enraged, understandably, and they wanted to kill the apostles. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, he stood up and he gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, and he mentions a couple of guys here, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispensed and came to nothing. Then in verse 37, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away, or led a revolt, some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them to not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then the apostles left the presence of the council. What do they do? They rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. In all three occasions, when they were told and beaten and were commanded to not preach the gospel, what do they do? They do that very thing. So this chapter finishes with them standing in the temple again preaching the name of Jesus and doing it out and about in the community as well to say that the religious leaders were uh, enraged is putting it lightly it says that they were ready to kill them and then a wise man by the name of Gamaliel stands up he's not a follower of Jesus so I'm not saying that he's a model to follow but theologically speaking he does say something that is true he says, hey guys, remember in the past when a couple people rose up, they were not doing the work of God, and so their plans failed. And so he says, hey guys, this time, the same thing will happen. Be careful how you re react to these apostles, because if it's the work of God, you can't stop it. But if it is the work of man, it will fail anyway. Well, guess what? Here we are 2,000 years later, and what do you think the answer to Gamaliel's question was? God was working through these men. Verse 38. He says, if the current plan is of man, it will fail. Verse 39. But if it's of God, you can't stop it. And in fact, if you try to stop the work of God, you're fighting against God himself. It's actually a, a compound word in verse 39. In the Greek, in 39, when it says... Um, you might be found opposing God. Opposing God is actually one word with the word of fight and God together. And it means God fighter. He says, don't fight against God's plans. You see, there are two paths for us to choose. We can either war for God's plan or we can war against it. I advise that we war for God's plan. That we work for God's plan. That we focus on God's plan instead of resisting God's plan. But all too often in our lives, God is speaking to us, encouraging us to follow him, and we put up a defense and we fight against God. Did you notice that? 
Or is it just me? Remember what Paul says back in Romans 7? He says, the very thing I want to do, I end up, uh, the very thing I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. He says, this war is going on inside of me. And which side will win, the flesh or the spirit? And in our lives, if we're not careful, we'll resist the work of God in our lives. And we shouldn't do that sort of thing. So, after Gamaliel gives his advice to the men, what do they do? They're like, okay, Gamaliel, we kind of wanted to kill him, but whatever. And they end up following his advice. But they don't just send them out. It says that they beat them. I don't want us to skate past this word beat, verse 40. This is a severe beating. This is the 40 lashes minus one, like the max that the law would allow. This is the kind of beating that skin would separate from the bones. This is a horrible beating. It's not a tongue lashing. It's not a slap of the wrist. It's a horrible beating. And these men are beat for the name of Jesus. And what do they do? They walk out shouting and rejoicing and preaching the name of Jesus. If you don't believe me, look at the verses. Right there in, in, in verse 41, it says that as they left the council, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name And then in verse 42, every day they preach the gospel. One of the paraphrases, it's not a translation, but one of the paraphrases of the Bible is called the message. And I I saw how Eugene Peterson wrote, it's kind of like a commentary, if you will, but here's what he put in verse 41. It says that the apostles were overjoyed. Because they had been given the honor of being dishonored on account of the name. They were honored that they were dishonored on account of the name. How could anyone rejoice at being suffer at at suffering at the the, for for the cause of Christ? How could we suffer how could we rejoice in that regard? First of all, we can rejoice even when we suffer because God is on our side. And also, number two, because he's using that suffering to sanctify us and make us more and more like him. I don't know what's going on in your life. This doesn't have to be related to preaching the gospel. But if you're facing difficult circumstances in your life where you feel like you're suffering and you're discouraged and you're sad and you're fearful, whatever the word may be, The example that we see in these men is that even in that moment, we can and we should rejoice in who God is. There's rejoicing even in the midst of our suffering. So that's what happened. We see that in the case of the apostles, they were presented with three different occasions to say no to preaching the gospel, and every single time they resoundingly said yes. So I want to ask two questions of ourselves. The first one is this. It'll be on the screen, and you may want to jot it down. How did the apostles do this? How did the apostles never cease to preach Jesus? The simple but true answer is this. They did it by the power of God, not by their own power. All throughout the book of Acts, we see the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the believers and in the life of the church. And in this scenario, we see the power of God, not their own power, empowered them to consistently preach the gospel. You see, God released them from the prison. So we knew that he released them. What did he release them to do? He released them to go preach the gospel. I I found a quote in a commentary that I read this week. 
and it's going to be on the screen. I want you to see this. The apostles, when they're freed from the prison, it says the apostles are then freed by divine action, by a God accustomed to moving through locked doors. The apostles are free, but they aren't safe. They are never safe. Safety is not the inheritance of Jesus' disciples, only witness. Now, what I'm not saying is that Jesus wants to make our life miserable. What I'm not saying is that Jesus wants us to live in peril all the time. But what I am saying is that Jesus' agenda is not to make us feel safe. His agenda is for us to live out the mission that he's given to us, which is to make disciples. And so in this scenario, the only way the church, the only way the apostles did not cease preaching Jesus was that the power of the Holy Spirit enabled them to do that. Verse 20, we see that God sent them back to preach the gospel. I don't know whether they would have on their own or not, but it was clear that God sent them. And so they went and did that very thing. How did they do it? They did it in the power of God's Spirit. You may want to jot this verse down. Verse 4, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verse 29. In chapter 4 of Acts, verse 29, we see that the apostles are responding to another arrest that took place. And they come back to the apostles and they say, let's pray together. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, I'll read it real quickly. Here's what it says. As they're praying to God, it says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. In other words, they prayed for boldness. God answered that prayer. And it's in his boldness and his power that they're able to preach the gospel. Verse 32 in chapter 5, we see that they say they are witnesses. And the way that they are witnesses is that the Holy Spirit is also a witness. The Holy Spirit is living inside of them and he's enabling them to go out. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's how they're preaching the gospel. How are they able to do it? Remember the words of Gamaliel. He said, if God's plan is this, you can't stop it. And so what happens is the church moves forward preaching the gospel because this is God's plan all along and God's plans cannot nor will they ever be thwarted. God's plan must endure. In verse 39, the word plan is a Greek word, boule. It's spelled B, at least that's how I pronounce it, B-O-U-L-E, boule. It's a major theme in the book of Acts. All over the book of Acts, that word keeps showing up. It's not always in the English, the word plan. Sometimes it has to do with the word predestined, but it's God's agenda, God's purpose, God's plan. Nothing can stop God's plan. Man-made plans are destroyed on their own. But God's plan, no one is able to destroy it. So how does the church keep preaching the gospel? By leaning in and trusting God and his spirit. You see, it's not about us not being stopped from preaching. Here's what I mean. We shouldn't focus on, am I always going to preach the gospel? No, the focus should be that nothing can stop God's gospel from being proclaimed. The apostles, we're clear in this. The apostles are so consumed by Jesus they had no other option but to preach the gospel. My question for us is, are we consumed by Jesus? Arrests, flogging, threats, none of those things stop the apostles from preaching Jesus is Christ. Nothing. Sadly, at least here in the United States, Almost everything stops believers from preaching the gospel. 
Here are the apostles. They're arrested. They're put in prison. They're flogged. They're beaten. They're threatened. Don't you ever do this again. And none of that seems to faze them because they step out in the power of the Holy Spirit to preach Jesus Christ to those around them. And yet, in the comfort of our world, all too often, you and I stop preaching Jesus on our own, not because someone commands us to stop. So that brings us to the last question. What is stopping you from preaching Jesus? What's stopping you from preaching Jesus? Howard, a moment ago in the children's chat, asked that same sort of question. I jotted a few things down, and perhaps you can relate to it. As I walk through this list, think about the things that may be stopping you from preaching the gospel, and then sense is the Holy Spirit convicting you to make a change in your life. The first one is one that I heard Tate say a moment ago, and that is we're fearful. That fear can come in a lot of different ways. Maybe we don't want people to make fun of us. Maybe we're afraid that, that something negative is going to happen to us, but we're fearful. Another reason could be we think that we lack the knowledge to preach the gospel. I don't know enough yet. Well, here's the deal. We should always study God's word. We should always seek to understand it better. But to simply share the gospel, if you know Jesus is your Savior, then you know enough to share with your friend. You don't have to have a seminary degree to share the gospel. I know that we as a church need to do our part in giving you some tools to, to be able to do that, but the reality is don't wait until you have a seminary degree to preach the gospel. All of us are called to preach the gospel. Some of us think along the same lines, hey, it's the job of the pastor, right? Like he's the one. The missionaries, they're the ones that are supposed to preach the gospel. No, the scripture is clear. Every one of the followers of Jesus, you and I included, whether you're on staff, whether you're a volunteer, whether you're a ministry leader or not, we are charged and commanded to preach the gospel. What are some other reasons that maybe we don't preach the gospel? Some of us, we're too busy. We're doing everything else under the sun. We got time for the things we want to do, but we don't make time to preach the gospel. Another one that I'm seeing, sadly, and this even comes from pastors. If you hop on things like Twitter or Facebook or anything like that, you'll see it. Unfortunately, there are so many pastors that get so focused on, on everything else, their ideologies, the narrative, their perspective, winning a theological argument, engaging and sparring with others that we don't have time to preach the gospel guys it's time for the church to stop going through division and it's time for us to be united to share the gospel that's our one mission that's our one task we can't walk away and compromise the truth and the foundation of the gospel but we also can't live divided lives let's be united to share the gospel And if we are divided, and we make time to preach the gospel, all too often the world says, no thank you. They see the vitriol. They see the hatred. They're like, if y'all can't even get along, I don't want any part of it. Now, I, let me be clear here. I don't think that Living Hope has a division, a, a divisive problem right now. I'm talking about the church as a whole. But if we're not careful, we can, as a church family or those that are around us, other believers in our community, if we're not careful, we can 
experience division, which actually stops the gospel from being preached. And then the last thing that I thought of, there could be others, is that perhaps we are preaching Jesus, but perhaps we're doing it in our own power. What does Gamaliel say? The plans of man will do what? They will fail. Gamaliel says the plans of God, what will they do? They will survive. You can't overthrow God's plans. Now, again, Gamaliel's not a believer, but what he says is true. If you're doing things in your own power and your own strength, it will fail. If you're doing things in the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit, they will succeed. So my question is, whenever you do share the gospel, are you doing it in your own power and your own strength? If you are, then you'll fail. But if you're doing it in the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit, then it will succeed. That doesn't mean every person you share the gospel will come to know Jesus as their Savior. It just means that you'll be faithful to faithfully share the gospel, and then it's the job of the Holy Spirit to do the conviction, right? So my question is, I'm not setting the early church up as on a pedestal, but I am saying in this moment they're getting it right. These apostles are preaching the gospel regardless of what obstacles come in their way. And all too often in our society today, we allow little bitty obstacles to become huge and we stop preaching the gospel. It's time for us to get back to sharing the gospel with all around us. So i got four questions for you to ask yourself. I'm going to ask them. They're kind of reflection questions. And I know some of them are yes, no questions. I get that. But you walk through the, the, the answering it beyond a yes, no in your life. The first question is this. Have you trusted in the words of this life? Earlier I said life is available only through Jesus. In other words, I'm asking, have you trusted in Jesus for salvation? If you haven't, would today be the day you would say yes to him? Here's the second reflection question. If you're a follower of Jesus, or even if you're not, are you fighting against the plans of God in your life? God's got plans for your life. Those plans are to love him, serve him, tell others the good news of Jesus, to live in community with a church family, to enjoy both the ups and downs of life, to rejoice in him. My question is, are you fighting against his plans? Here's the third reflection question. Playing off the last verse in chapter 5, have you ceased to teach and preach that Jesus, that Christ is Jesus, that the Christ is Jesus? Have you ceased teaching and preaching Jesus? Or maybe another way to say it is, have you even begun to do that? Here at our church, we talk about being a disciple, making disciples, being the church to the glory of God. Part of being a disciple, trusting in Jesus for salvation, is to go out and tell others as well. And then here's the fourth reflection question. What obstacles do you need to ask God for his help to remove so that you can preach? In other words, what obstacles are in your life that are preventing you from preaching the gospel? And then will you ask Jesus to remove those obstacles. I flash back to what the apostles hear from the Sanhedrin. They said, we strictly charge you to stop preaching the gospel. 
and yet here you are preaching the gospel, and the proof is the fact that this whole city is filled with your teaching. Church, what would it be like if all of College Station and Bryan and the Brazos Valley, because of us and because of other believers in our community as well, that the teaching of Jesus has so saturated this area that everyone has heard of the name of Jesus and the salvation that's through his name. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and at the end of the prayer, there's going to be several ways that you can respond. There'll be some guys passing some offering plates, and as they pass that, you can drop an offering if you brought that with you. You can drop a connection card. If there's a decision you need to make, you can put out that on your connection card, or you can use the prayer card, put that in the offering plate as well. You can stand and sing with us at that point. You can come and pray at the altar. You can come pray with me. You can say yes to Jesus. You can repent of sin. You can respond however God is leading you to respond in this moment. Let's say yes to him, and let's never cease preaching the name of Jesus. Let me pray for us.